As modern Christians, we are very familiar with C.S. Lewis. We know him as the author of the Chronicles of Narnia. We know him as one of the most, if not most, prolific Christian philosopher of the 20th century. And we know him as an insightful apologist who was a fierce defender of the faith. Now, what you might not know is that C.S. Lewis was a once-devout atheist. And in his own words, he was a reluctant convert. But after an extended time of consideration and reconsidering the facts before him, lots of long discussions with his good friend J.R. Tolkien, Lewis was on a one-way path that would inevitably lead him into a confrontation with the living God. Of his own confrontation, Lewis wrote this, You must picture me alone in that room at college, night after night, feeling whenever my mind lifted even for a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him who I so earnestly desired not to meet. That which I greatly feared had finally at last come upon me. In 1929, I gave in, and I admitted that God was God, and I knelt and prayed, perhaps that night, the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England. Probably not the testimony that most of us would aspire to. (laughs) that most of us would aspire to and want to share. But nonetheless, that was it. See, Lewis found himself in the uncomfortable presence of God. He said that any attempt on his part to search for God was like a mouse searching for a cat. This week and next week, we're we're going to spend our time together in Psalm 139. And this psalm highlights what theologians call the incommutable attributes of God. God's communable attributes are those attributes which can be transferred to us. It can be given to us by Him. His love, His grace, His mercy, His justice, His kindness, so forth and so on. His incommutable attributes are those attributes which are His in His alone. In this passage, we see that God is omniscient. He is all-knowing. He is omnipresent. He is present in all places at all times. And he is omnipotent. He's all-powerful. All of these attributes are in full display here in Psalm 139. As we examine this passage, we're going to see that Lewis and the psalmist, who incidentally is David, had one thing in common. They had one thing in common. They both had an uncomfortable run-in with the incommutable attributes of God, the all-knowing, all-present, all-powerful God. Over the next two weeks, we're going to examine Psalm 139, and we're going to see that the knowledge of the Lord is encircling, the presence of the Lord is inescapable, and the power of the Lord is transformative. And we're going to tackle the first two this morning, and we'll save the third one for next week. But before we turn our attention to his word, 
Let's pray and ask that the Lord bless our time in his word. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your presence with us this morning. We thank you for your word, which imparts life. And Lord, as we turn our attention towards it this morning, we pray that you would give us ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts to receive. And we pray, Lord, that you would renew us and transform us by the power of your word this morning, we pray in your name. Amen. Our first point this morning, the knowledge of the Lord is encircling. Take your Bibles and look at Psalm 139, verse 1 with me. O Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thoughts up from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all of my ways. Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. Here David says, the Lord knows me. The Lord knows me. He knows my actions, what I do. From the most mundane things of how I take my coffee to the complexities of what I work on at work. He knows my actions. He knows my thoughts, what I think, what I daydream about. He knows my ways, how I act, my behavior, good, bad, or otherwise. He knows my, and this one blows my mind, he knows my not yet spoken words. My not yet, I think it's up here. Jack Mary's calling. I'm going to keep that over here just in case I need to silence that again. <laughs> he knows my not yet spoken words. He knows what I say even before I say it. And you remember the words of Jesus to the Pharisees, right? He said, out of the abundance of the heart, the Mouth speaks. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Now, this is amazing. Because God knows the words of our lips before they're even formed, which means he understands the depths of my heart where those words are forged. Now, incidentally, Whenever I'm preaching, I put a lot of study time in, and inevitably I get to midweek, I get to Wednesday, and I hit this point where I'm like, I got no idea what I'm going to say. I know some of you are thinking, really? You don't seem to have a problem with saying anything. No, seriously, I, I have no idea what I'm going to say. And inevitably, I do the same thing every single time. So Wednesday, I pick up my, I got no idea what I'm going to say. I pick up my phone, I text Carol Boudreaux, and I said, Carol, I need to pray for me. I have no idea what I'm going to say. And this week, I sent her that text message, and almost immediately she texted me back, and she said, don't worry about it. The Lord knows what you're going to say. I'm like, she had no idea what I was preaching on. I'm like, that is literally in the passage. How did I miss that? I have nothing to worry about. 
The Lord knows me. He knows my actions. He knows my thoughts. He knows my ways. He knows my not yet spoken words. Now, as citizens of the United States, we have the right to privacy. The First Amendment protects the privacy of beliefs. The Third Amendment protects the privacy of the home. The Fourth Amendment protects the privacy of a person and their possessions. And the Fifth Amendment protects the privacy of personal information. However, as created beings in dwelling creation, we have no such right when it comes to the Creator. As created beings dwelling in creation, we have no such right when it comes to the Creator. If you remember back to the sermon that I preached in the beginning of the year, we saw that the term Lord, when it appears in the Psalms and the Proverbs, it translates the proper name for God, which is Yahweh, the self-existent one. We saw in that sermon that Yahweh has an absolute claim over all reality because he created reality. Likewise, because the Creator has an absolute claim over all creation, He has an absolute right to know all things. Even the secrets that we harbor in the deepest recesses of our hearts, He knows it all. A.W. Tozer put it this way. He said, God knows instantly and effortlessly all matter and all matters. All mind and every mind, all spirit and all spirits, all being and every being, all creaturehood and all creatures, every polarity and all polarities, all law and every law, all relations, all causes, all thoughts, all mysteries, all enigmas, all feelings, all desires, every unuttered secret. He knows it all. There is nothing that can be known that is not known by him. God is transcendent. That's what this passage teaches us. He stands above and beyond the created order. However, this passage also teaches us that God is intimate. He stands near and he's intimately acquainted with every facet of our existence. Our actions, our thoughts, our ways are not yet spoken words. None of it is a mystery to him. He knows it all. Now this transcendent imminence, well, this makes for a painfully uncomfortable reality. Take your Bibles and look down at the latter half of verse 4. Behold, O Lord, you know it all. You know it all. You have enclosed me from behind and before, and you have laid your hand upon me. Now, scholars generally agree that this knowledge, that knowledge in this context is a judicial knowledge. It's a knowledge that, that carries with it a weight of judgment. In other words, the psalmist was painfully aware of his own sin and the fact that his sin could not be concealed from the Lord. Now, we don't know the historic background of this psalm with any certainty, 
But imagine with me David lingering in that time between the death of Uriah and his confrontation with the prophet Nathan. That entire time, relentlessly pressing in upon him was the invasive knowledge of the Lord. The Lord knew David looked upon Uriah's wife with lust. The Lord knew that David knew her in the biblical sense. The Lord knew David had her husband killed in an attempt to cover it all up. And what's worse? What's worse? The Lord, or David knew that the Lord knew. He knew that the Lord knew. He might have tried to stuff it down. He might have tried to cover it up. But in his heart of hearts, he knew. He knew the Lord knew. James Montgomery Boyce wrote of this passage, an all-knowing God is immensely threatening. An all-knowing God is immensely threatening. David was all too aware of the threatening knowledge of the creator of all things. What about you? What about me? Are we aware of the threatening reality of the Lord's all-invasive knowledge? Are we aware of that? Because he knows us. He knows our actions, our thoughts, our behaviors, our not-yet-spoken words, and he knows the nature of the heart in which those words were forged. He knows us inside and out. There is no escaping his knowledge. Here's the significance of this. I, I am fully convinced that the greatest threat that we face as individuals is not our sin. The greatest threat that we face as individuals is not our sin or even the consequences of our sin. The greatest single threat that we face as individuals is denial and self-delusion. Denial and self-delusion. Remember what John said in his first epistle. He said, if we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves. And the truth is not in us. Truth is not in us. Sadly, I think for many of us, like some sort of ostrich-peacock hybrid, we bury our heads in the sand while waving our feathers around for all the world to see and admire us. We push down the truth and the reality of our sin and we strut our stuff with our beautiful feathers up trying to impress everyone. Listen, you can live a lie for a time. You can live a lie for a time, maybe for your whole life. But lies tend to come out in the wash. Lies tend to come out in the wash. And for the ones that don't, it's only a matter of time. In the words of John Lennon, and I think Pastor Brian might have quoted this song a couple months ago. In the words of John Lennon, you can go to church and sing a hymn. You can live a lie until you die. 
But the one thing you can't hide is what? When you're crooked inside. Why? Because the Lord knows it all. The Lord knows it all. He sees the crippled condition of our inner beings. He knows us inside and out. And so David concludes in verse 6 that such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's too high. I cannot attain to it. Now, verse 6 sounds nice at first glance. It sounds comforting even. But commentators tell us that something gets lost in our modern translations. They tell us that the knowledge of the Lord is wonderful only in the same sense that a a tornado or hurricane is wonderful. It is dreadfully wonderful. In its vast, unrelenting power, the knowledge of the Lord is a wonderfully threatening thing. And this is reflected in the next stanza as David expresses his desire to flee. But as we're going to see, and this is our second point this morning, the presence of the Lord is inescapable. Look down at verse 7 with me. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you're there too. If I take to the wings of the dawn, if I, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there, even there. If I ascend to heaven, if I fly to the moon, you are present with me. I'm sure some of you can remember back to the Christmas Eve of 1968. I cannot because I was not alive. It was about 11 or 12 years before I was born, but some of you can remember that. And you remember sitting on your couch in front of the television as the crew of the Apollo 8 orbited around the moon. What did they do in that moment? They read the creation account from the book of Genesis. Even there, even there, the Lord was present with them, even in that remotest of places. If I descend into the cool, lifeless depths of the grave, you are present with me. If I rise on the wings of the dawn and let them carry me, uh, carry me clear over the horizon and into the evening twilight, you are present with me. If I take to the sea and sail off the edge of the world, even there you are present with me. I cannot escape your presence, said the psalmist. You are constantly with me. Now this is not presence in some sort of pantheistic sense like God is an impersonal force. Sorry, Star Wars fans. But here's the thing. We've already seen that God's knowledge of the psalmist is personal and intimate. And it is that same personal and intimate knowledge that pursues the psalmist on his journey throughout the universe. When I was a little boy, I had a friend who lived across the street from me. And Jesse was a very mischievous kid with a stern Catholic mother. And I can vividly remember watching Jesse running up the street with his mother yelling from behind him, Jesse, 
You get back here right now. Jesse, if you don't get back here right now, Jesus is going to get you. And I couldn't help but think of that, that, that memory this week. You know, 30 some odd years later, I'm finding out Jesse's mom actually had some pretty good theology. She had some pretty sound theology. Because you see, Jesse could run from his mom, but he couldn't run from Jesus. He could run from his mom, but he couldn't run from Jesus. Incidentally, I learned this week that Jesse is Hebrew for the Lord exists. A rather misfortunate name for someone who runs from his good Catholic mom and the Lord. Now this very real, very cognitive presence of the Lord, it pursues. It pursues. And what the presence of the Lord pursues, the presence of the Lord will subdue. What the presence of the Lord pursues, the presence of the Lord will subdue. In verse 10, David says, your right hand will lay hold of me. Your right hand will lay hold of me. See, David can run, but the presence of the Lord will subdue him. And the hand of the Lord will lay upon him. It is inevitable. Again, we can imagine David being confronted by Nathan. In fact, I think it's, it's worth our time to take a look at. Take your Bibles and, and turn with me over to 2 Samuel chapter 12. I'll give you a second to turn there. Second Samuel chapter 12, starting in verse 1. Then the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said, There were two men in one city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a great many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little lamb, which he bought and nourished. And it grew up together with him and his children, it would eat of his bread and drink of his cup and lie in his bosom. And he was like a daughter to him. Now, a traveler came to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take from his own flock or his own herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. Rather, he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger burned greatly against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, surely the man who has done this deserves to die. He must make restitution for the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and had no compassion. Nathan then said to David, you are that man. Thus says the Lord of God of Israel, it is I who anointed you king over Israel, and it is I who, de who delivered you from the hands of Saul. I also gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your care, and I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have added to you many more things like these. Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, 
and you have taken his wife to be your own wife. Those are some pretty tough words. That's a harsh word. You know something? I think it's entirely possible that the most gracious words that David ever heard were, you are that man. Even though the knowledge of the Lord is encircling and the presence of the Lord is inescapable, an encounter with the Lord is oddly liberating. Look at verse 13, staying in 2 Samuel. Verse 13, then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has taken away your sin. Really? That's it? Nothing more? After everything he had done? I have sinned against the Lord just in the mission? I mean, it wasn't even a free mission. It was kind of forced. I have sinned against the Lord. The Lord has taken away your sin. The Lord, in his good grace, sent Nathan to David to essentially say, listen, David, you don't have to live this way. You don't have to live this way. You don't have to live with, with your head in the sand and your feathers in the air. There is a better way. There is a better way. Now, concerning his own confrontation with the Lord, C.S. Lewis concluded with this. He said, I did not then see what is now the most shining and obvious thing, the divine humility which will accept a convert even on such terms. The prodigal son at least walked home on his own two feet. But who can duly adore that love which will open the high gates to a prodigal who's brought in kicking, struggling, resentful, and darting his eyes in every direction for a chance to escape. Lewis went on to say that the hardness of God is kinder than the softness of men, and his compulsion is our liberation. And so for the psalmist, it seems to come down to a trick of retrospect. With hindsight in the mirrors, David concludes that the uncomfortable presence of God is really no threat at all. It's grace. You see, back in Psalm 139, David says in verse 10, your hand will lead me. Yes, your hand will lay hold of me. But it won't just lay hold of me. It will lead me. And as we're going to see next week, it will lead us in the way that is everlasting. You see, David comes to realize the knowledge that encircles and the presence that is inescapable reaches out to lovingly take hold of him and to guide him. He, like Lewis, may have been kicking and screaming as he was being subdued, but he quickly comes to the realization that his capture is really his salvation. As with a, a small child who stubbornly casts aside his floaties before jumping into the deep end of the pool, 
The present hand of the father reaches down and lays hold of his wayward child. Pulling him out of harm's way and into salvation. Now, as I was preparing this song, or sorry, this sermon uh, this past week, two songs just kept coming to mind and were looping in my head the entire time. Uh, The first one was Blondie's One Way or Another. You know that one? One way or another, I'm gonna get you. I'm gonna get you, get you, get you, get you. One way, I'll find you, I'll get you. That's a creeper song, right? For sure. It's possible for us to perceive, and rightly so. It is possible for us to perceive, and rightly so, the Lord is an imminent threat. One way or the other, he's going to get me. He's going to find me. One way or another, there's no escape. However, another song kept coming to mind over this past week as well. And that was Marvin Gaye and Tammy Terrell's famous duet. You guys remember that one? Ain't no mountain high. Ain't no valley low. I'm going to try so hard not to sing this one. Ain't no river wide enough. If you need me, call me. No matter where you are, no matter how far, don't worry. Just call my name. I'll be there in a hurry. You don't have to worry. My love is alive way down in my heart, although we are miles apart. If you ever need a helping hand, I'll be there on the double just as fast as I can. Why? Because ain't no mountain high enough, ain't no valley low enough, ain't no river wide enough to keep me from getting to you. Jack, you really need to call Mary. (laughs) Now, when it comes to the encircling knowledge and inescapable presence of the Lord, it's all a matter of posture and perspective. It's all a matter of posture and perspective. Are you waving your feathers in the air with your head buried in the sand, pushing everything down, putting a good face on, trying to impress everyone around you when you are totally broken and crippled inside. If that's you, well, then you are bound to view God as a threat. You're bound to view God as a threat. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we, like David... Confess our sins. He is faithful and just and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Why? Because there ain't no mountain high enough, ain't no valley low enough, ain't no river wide enough to keep us from the encircling, inescapable, loving presence of the Lord. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your presence in our lives. We thank you for the love that you have for us. We thank you that in Christ what could be so threatening, your presence actually becomes oddly comforting. 
Lord Jesus, as we come before your table this morning, I pray that you make us especially aware of your presence. For those of us who are in a place of peace with you, Lord, I just pray that we would just enjoy our time in your presence. For those of us who are desperately trying to escape from your inescapable presence, Lord, I pray that we would find at your table a place for us today, a place of salvation, a place of rest, a place of comfort, a place of peace, knowing, Lord, that our ultimate good is found in you, that you care for us deeply, that you care for us intrinsically. Jesus, bless our time now. At your table, we pray in your name. Amen.